0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the res Church podcast. res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus, and so we hope that you will be blessed by this message uh, we 're doing things a little different today um, we We got into chapter seven and Keith and I started talking and we thought this would be a really good opportunity with where we're at in Romans to really have sort of a conversational time with our teaching today. And, and really, that's motivated by two things. One is, we we wanted to give you a window into what the elders of the church do. Um, I mean, we you, you see us stand up here and teach, but there's a lot of wrestling and prayer and discussion and debate that goes on um, in the office. You know, Sometimes the ladies in the office think Keith and I are mad at each other. Uh, We we come out for lunch, and they're like, should we even say a word to them after we've been debating Scripture? But that's what we do. That's an important function of the church is what elders do is wrestling with text and, and the ministry of the Word and prayer. And you remember that when Pastor Barr... Uh, we announced his retirement uh, earlier this year. We told you that we um, that Pastor Barr's retirement kind of pushed us to do something that or work on something that we've been feeling was needed for a long time, and that is to add lay elders to our eldership body here at Resurrection Church. And so that is something that Keith and I have already begun to work on. Brian Onkin, who um, is kind of like a pastor and overseer with us, is working with us and having conversations with us about that. We're going to take our time. We're not in a hurry. But that is something that we're working on, and it's an important function of the church. The second reason we're doing this is because this part of Romans is so crucial and it's so wonderful, as we see the Apostle Paul, this, this guy that we tend to keep on a pedestal, um, you know, he's almost untouchable, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, he's the apostle of apostles, this guy gets so vulnerable and real and transparent about his ongoing battle with sin. And, it, and we just thought this would be a great opportunity for us to come and just have a conversation about the Christian and his or her war with sin the 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 process of sanctification the growth in holiness gaining victory over the sin battles and struggles that sometimes seem to just overwhelm the christian Uh, We thought this would be a good time to have a conversation. So we haven't scripted this a whole lot. Um, I brought my laptop in case I needed to look up something, um, keys on an iPad, but we're just going to dive in and talk and and bat back and forth, and we want you to be a part of the conversation with us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 7. Romans 7. We're going to try to get into chapter 8 a little bit. We'll see how it goes. We may not get there. We're going to start with verse fourteen, Romans seven, verse fourteen. I love hearing pages turn. Romans chapter seven, verse fourteen. All right, let's let's read a little bit of it, and then we'll talk. Paul writes and says, "For we know that the law is spiritual." but i'm of the flesh sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not I, I do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i if i do what i do not want i agree that the law I, re, I agree with the law that it is good so now it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells within me for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't think I read that with the right emotion. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Thanks be to God through through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would um, just come right now, come in power. Holy Spirit, be the teacher today as we as the people of God talk and wrestle with your word. Transform us, renew our minds, let our hearts and minds be open to hear from you today and just let Keith and I be your instruments As we declare the truth, in Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say amen. 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 (laughs) All right, so Keith, last week we talked about the law. Um, Paul has told us that we are no longer under law. We are under grace. He answered some questions last week. If the law, all that the law did was arouse sin all the more, um, and the very thing that would promise us life proved death to us, Give us your kind of perspective on last week, how the law is not a bad thing. The law is not an evil thing. The law is actually a good thing. How are we to understand that?
1: Yeah, so chapter 7 in Romans, if you have been with us for the duration of the Roman study, you would probably have come to the conclusion up to chapter 7 that the law is not a good thing that the law is a bad thing. Now, this is critical to Paul because what Paul doesn't want you to do is come to the wrong conclusion about the law. Insert Romans chapter seven. And so the problem is, is the law is not bad. God never intended the law to be something bad. He intended it to be something good. And so the law is not the problem. It's the diagnostic test that reveals the problem. And so that is a gracious act on God's behalf. And so what I think Paul is trying to help us understand that the law of God or the command of God specifically was meant to guard life, to preserve life, to make sure that we didn't fall into a type of living that ultimately leads to death, sinful living. And so I think what Paul was doing was dealing mostly with a misconception about the law itself. Up to this point, it would be easy to conclude that the law is bad. It can't save you. It doesn't fix the desires of your heart. It can't bring about the change that you would hope to see in your own life. And so it would be easy to conclude based off of those factors that, well, the law isn't really all that helpful. It really isn't all that good in my life. It has done nothing but ultimately serve a death sentence on me. And so what Paul is challenging in 7 is that the law... Is not bad. It is actually a way in which God is preserving your life, not taking away from your life. And so I think it's really important that we understand the law in terms of relationship. The law is not meant to be a set of rules. It's meant to guard relationships. And when the law is violated, isn't it true that we, we sense the tension in our relationship with God? When we, when we sin, we experience that tension? Well, the reason that is is because the law is meant to preserve and guard the relationship. The good thing is, is that Jesus has dealt ultimately with that issue. And he has preserved for us a lifelong promise that the law could not provide. And so what Jesus did on the cross was fulfill the law. He didn't abolish it. Remember that in Matthew that Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. In other words, I came to bring what the law could not bring. And so for Paul,
0: I think what he's doing is he's really correcting a mindset. Yeah, And, and he's also, I think, um, kind of helping us understand a prophecy that goes all the way back to the book of Jeremiah where God said there's going to come a day where I'm going to write my law on people's hearts, right? And so here's the, here's the experience of the Christian, the born-again Christian, is that we find that the law is no longer something we relate to just in terms of a written code. Like these are the rules, and I look at the rules, and I'm, I'm striving to obey the rules because I don't want to be punished, right? Right? If you have children, you know what this is like, is that there are things you tell them to do they don't want to do, right? But they do them because they don't want to break the rules. And that's not the nature of the Christian relationship, is it? God's not interested in a relationship with us where we're just afraid to break rules. So what he does is he writes the law on our hearts and we have new desires, But this is the place we've come to, isn't it, in Romans? And I told you, I wanted us all, I've done this, I hope you have, if you were here last week, is to take this week and reflect on our condition, this new condition we find ourselves in as Christians, is that I want the good that the law shows me. I want it. But I find that I lack the strength in this body to do the very thing I want to do right? This is, we can so identify with Paul here is that, you know, and this is what the next question we're going to wrestle with is if Paul is talking about himself as a converted Christian, if he's talking about himself as post saved, then there's something we really identify with this is that I have the desire to do what is good. But a lot of times I find myself doing the very thing I hate. So this is, a controversial text in Romans. And this is one of the things we have, I don't know how many hours we've spent wrestling with this. You know, we spent two hours in Starbucks with Brian Alkin wrestling with this. And is is Paul talking about himself post-salvation or pre-salvation? You understand what I mean by that? In other words, is he saying, I do what I don't want to do, and the, and the thing I do is the thing that I hate. Is he talking about himself before? Salvation, or after salvation. And I can tell you right now, scholars have debated this for a long, long time. And there are really smart people on both sides of the argument. So let's decide, let's, let's try to understand, is Paul talking about his Christian experience or his pre-Christian experience? Let me point you to a couple of things. One, look at verse 18 of Romans 7. Verse 18 of Romans 7. Verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So what's happened for Paul? His desires have changed, haven't they? That's the first indication for me that we're talking about a post-saved Paul. Is his desires have changed. He's acknowledging that in his flesh, he lacks the ability to live out what he wants. But he's, he's also acknowledging there's a delight in God that, you know, when you look at the whole of the New Testament, isn't true of the non-believer. you say him into that, right? So that's one of the first indications. Here's the other thing. About 40 times at the end of chapter seven, Paul uses the personal pronoun I or me in the present tense. You know, he says things like, I am of the flesh. With my mind, I am serving the law. I agree that the law is good and so on. And so there's a clear indication That Paul is talking about himself in the present tense. Here's another one. As you look at passages like in Galatians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3 when Paul is definitely talking about his pre-conversion state, he doesn't give any indication whatsoever of this kind of inner turmoil that's going on in him. In fact, let me just read you one of those. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter three, verse four. I hear the kids singing. You hear yeah, that? awesome. Yeah. Here is what he writes: Philippians three, verse four. He said. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I don't see any indication of this kind of inner turmoil where it brings him to the conclusion or to the cry to God, wretched man that I am. I do the things I hate, and I don't do the things that I love. You want to add anything to that, Keith?
1: Yeah, I think, like, when I think about this language that Paul uses, wretched man that I am, what we see is a willingness in Paul, a desire in Paul to do what the law says to do what God has commanded. And so we all understand as Christians that that desire isn't something we come up with ourselves. It is something God gives us. But what, what's difficult is there's a distinction that Paul is making here that willingness alone isn't enough, right? I desire it. But I'm not doing it. I'm not actually following through with what I know to be good. And and so when we were talking about this in the the office this week, we were also talking about Easter. And what became abundantly clear to me, and I think it's amazing at how God orchestrated the writing of Scripture. But, you know, there's two gardens that are images that we get in Scripture about the garden. We get Adam in the garden, and we know how that story ends. Adam and Eve choose to do it their way for their own self-gratification, you know, she desired the fruit, and she ate the fruit, and so did Adam. And so we see that picture of self-gratification. I'm going to do it my way in the first garden. But then we also get a picture of Jesus in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but what's really cool about his prayers, he prays to the Father, and he says these words, Not my will, but your will be done. And so what Jesus does there is he, he is doing exactly what I think Paul is struggling to do. He is saying yes to the Father's will, yes to the command of God, yes to the law of God, and no to his self-fleshly gratification. And so in two gardens, what we get is a picture of what this type of life looks like. And doesn't that feel daunting? Like when you think about that, like I get Jesus being in a garden, but he's Jesus, right? Like we we pull out a card, like you Jesus, you're different, like you you special. But Paul feels a tension here. And I think we need to feel it as well because... I don't think what Paul is saying here is it's impossible for you to say yes to God's plan and God's command. I think that's why he's saying wretched. He's, he's frustrated that he has a desire that he can't seem to live out. And so what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's exposing the frustration in his heart and his mind, his innermost being. And I think you've been there. Like, if you've ever sinned and then sinned again, You feel the frustration, you feel the tension, like, why am I still doing this? Like, God, I know you dealt with this, but here I'm like, wretched man. It's really Paul's gritting his teeth like, he's just really frustrated. And so what I want to kind of inform you of and let you know that really is what I think is, is beautiful Is what Jesus quotes in uh, Matthew. He says in Isaiah, says this, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, their fear of me is a command taught by men. What Paul is doing is he's saying just the opposite of that. God, my heart is there, but for some reason, my mouth isn't there. So fix that. That's what he's longing for. He's longing for his flesh to come into submission to what he's already experienced in his heart. And I think that's a really important thing that he's saying.
0: You know, you mentioned the garden, and when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane praying, what are the disciples doing? Sleeping, right? They just had a big meal. And Jesus comes to them, and he finds them sleeping, and then he says this. He says, could you not pray with me for one hour? He says, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And I don't think that he's only talking about himself and his turmoil in the garden. I think he's talking about the disciples. Because what happens when the soldiers come to arrest him? They all, right? And, and isn't that so true of us? We find ourselves just physically lacking the strength to live out in our flesh what our spirit wants. And here's the dangerous place really one of two dangerous places that I think a lot of Christians come to. They either conclude that if I'm saved, I'm I'm not supposed to ever struggle with sin. And if I am struggling with sin, and if I'm even continuously struggling with sin, I must not be saved. Or they conclude, right, that I am saved And here in Romans chapter 7, Paul is telling me that I'm just doomed to a life of failure with sin more often than not. We wrongly conclude that. I want you to notice how Paul ends chapter 7. All right, He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the ESV puts an exclamation point right there. If Paul is talking about his struggle as if it were pre-salvation, I think he would have ended chapter seven right there and gone right into chapter eight, and it would read this way: Thanks. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point, chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we could read it that way, and all of us who battle sin or find ourselves in that place where we have the desires for what is right, and we lack the strength to live it out, and we just go, well, I must just not be in but that's not how he ends it, is it? Go back to 25, verse 25, chapter seven. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I want that. I see his beauty, I see his righteousness, I see the good in the law of God, I see the good and the joy and the glory of living according to God's plan for my life. I see that in my mind. But with my flesh, this body, I serve the law of sin. All right? So that's how he ends chapter seven. I think this is a post-safe Paul who's not telling us, listen carefully, he's not telling us that his Christian experience is as bad as it could be. I think what he's telling us is that his Christian experience is not as good as it could be. I'm going to say that again. This is not Paul. This is a post-saved Paul who has desires and acknowledges the weakness of his flesh, who's not telling us that his Christian experience is as bad as it could be. He's telling us that it's not as good as it could be. And isn't there a great hope there for us? But we got to wrestle with something else. And that is this indwelling sin that Paul keeps talking about. This is another thing we really wrestle with is what is that, Paul? Because he says it three times. Three times in this text he says, in some way or another, he talks about sin that dwells within me. Sin that dwells within me. Paul, if you're saved, what is this remaining sin that still dwells within me. Why not you take off on that? Yeah, sure. This is an easy one. I <laughs> only give him, the, I lob him the softballs, right? I just, oh, I'm just kidding.
1: No, it's good. It's good. <clears throat> so we've all experienced the influence of sin, right? Every person in this room that calls themselves a believer has felt the pressure of sin at some point. And it's interesting at how Paul throughout Romans, he kind of gives it like a he kind of personifies it, like gives it like this almost like a personality, and then he describes it like as a force, this thing that's active in the world. And and so the best way I can kind of try to help us understand it is sin often finds itself operating from social pressures, constraints of tradition. And so it also finds itself operating in ingrained habits hereditary traits and so sin while we can't go that's there it is it's you know it's 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 like a moving target for Paul it's not always the same thing but isn't it true and this is evidence I think and we didn't really talk much about this but it just kind of occurred to me like isn't it true that every time sin shows up whether it's a outside force or an inward Voice or some kind of pressure you're feeling or influence, isn't it true that every time you're aware of it? Isn't that true? Like, oh, you have that moment where it's like the light bulb, you know, the light bulb goes off and you're like, wait a minute. And then you find yourself right back to where Pastor Bradley was talking a moment ago. You're right back in the garden where the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing, right? You've, we've all had that experience, and that's what Paul's talking about. So sin is waiting for you. You understand that, right? You ever pulled out of the parking lot of the church and sin was driving the car beside you? Right? And that trait that you... Never, never. Y'all remind me, I've got a picture of Pastor Bradley's driving. It's hilarious. Isn't it true, though, like sin, the thing about sin, here's what you need to understand, the law... We've all said this, right? You're playing with fire. You play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned, right? Well, the law isn't what burns you. It's the fire that burns you. It's the law that warns you. And so what you've got to be aware of and what's so, I think, so beautiful about this text is, and we all can relate to Paul. We can all identify with Paul. We can all go, yeah, Paul, I get it. I've experienced it too. And I love that because Paul, he's like, you know, he's like a big, Kind of a big name in the Bible. And so, you know, if he's struggling with it, then it must be okay for me to struggle with it. But I want to really reiterate what Pastor Bradley said. One reason that we all live frustrated is because the command requires obedience, right? And when we fail to obey, we feel the weight of that. But it's not just that, right? It's not just that. And for Christians, I I think it's true. Like, you guys. We have to understand something here. We may struggle with the influence of sin until our last breath, but that does not mean we're not free from the power of it, the force of it. Sin, for a believer, sin cannot and does not force you to do anything. It does not. It's still a real thing. It's still there whispering in your ear. It's still there in all of your traits or from social or peer pressure or whatever other form of force or personality it may have. But the reality is, and I think this is what Paul is really going, oh, I wish you would understand this, because I think he's talking about life, is that it's going to happen, but you have all you need. Like I think about Corinthians where it says that God will provide a way out of your temptation, but do you know what it says right before that? That you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. God isn't going to let sin force you to do anything. That's what's beautiful about it. So not only has God dealt with sin, but he's made us aware of sin. He's given us a A passion and a frustration. Like, we ought to be thankful for the frustration we feel. Right? Like, we really are to go, God, thank you that I am so irritated with my flesh. Because it's an awareness that only comes about through the grace of God. What's really sad is when we're unaware. But the good news is is we're not cursed to live this way.
0: I wonder, and it might be good for all of us to just ask ourselves this question: um, Do we understand that the Christian life is a fight? Right, Right? we're in a war. We don't make peace with sin; we make war with sin. And Jesus said, "Our enemy Satan roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." I I thought of this scripture while Keith was talking in Ephesians 5, verse 15. Same apostle, he writes, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully. Be careful. Pay attention. One translation says, um, see then that you walk circumspectly, which is literally like keep your head on a swivel. Pay attention. Why? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are Evil. I think Paul's personification of sin or his talk about the power of sin or the law of sin is really his way of trying to help us understand that the enemy, Satan himself, is at work in the world. I mean, I think sometimes we think that temptation is like Satan crouching behind, you know, the corner back there and, and he's just waiting for us and, and just trying to trip us up in the moment. But and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I think what the enemy's doing is he's at work in the world. He's at work in the world in such a way that he's creating influences and opportunities and he's he's putting out there everything that is evil and wicked and unrighteous and he's doing that in an effort to exploit our weak flesh. Because while we are renewed in spirit, here's what's true. We remain in a body that's weak a body that has cravings, a body that wants, a body that wants and it wants what it wants now, right? You know, a lot of temptation, a lot of sin, maybe all of it is really our succumbing to, we've got to have instant gratification, we want, we want to be satisfied and we want to be satisfied with what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can see, what we can smell, what we can hear. We want it and we want it right now. And, and the Christian life, really, it's not about denying satisfaction or not finding satisfaction. It's about finding satisfaction through dependence on the Word and the Spirit, right? It's through faith that we find satisfaction and Sin, this power, this force that's at work in the world is trying to exploit my weak flesh that wants what it wants right now. And a lot of times Christians find themselves in a losing battle because they're like, I don't know what to do. My flesh wants this and opportunities are everywhere and I don't know how to fight in that battle. And again, I want to say to us, I don't think Paul is talking about his Christian experience as though it is this constant defeat, as though he has no hope and we have no hope of overcoming the power of sin that's at work to try to exploit our weak flesh. And so the question then becomes, how is it, if it's true what Pastor Keith just said, we have everything that we need for this fight, if God doesn't command us to do anything without resourcing us to fulfill that command, how is it that we have everything that we need for this fight? Let's look at the end, again at the end of chapter seven. Let's pick up again in verse 24. <clears throat> so wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to give me the power to fight a different way? Because I have desires for what is right. I have desires for the things that God wants for my life, but my flesh is weak. I can't live that out in my flesh. So who's going to deliver me? Who's going to provide me another way? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what is this deliverance that Paul's asking for? What do you think?
1: Well, I think it's two things. I think when you read that text, you can let your experience dictate how you read it. In other words, at some point in the distant future, I will die and I will be delivered from this flesh. Mm -hmm. And that's not a wrong reading. It's just not all that I think Paul is saying here. I do think that's true. I think Paul longs for that day, actually, based off of other texts of Scripture and Hebrews and other places. But specifically, I want you to think now, present, right this second. Who's going to deliver me at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when my kid isn't listening and my flesh is rearing its ugly head? Who, in the moment that I feel the influence is going to deliver me? Who's going to be the one? Because the thing that I think God is saying here through Paul is really important. That in the present, in real time, yes, in the future too, but in real time there is one who will deliver you, that will actually enable you to obey the command that you feel in the innermost part of your being in that moment, to submit yourself to the will of God as Jesus did in the garden instead of your own will as Adam did in his garden. It's, the question isn't, like Pastor Bradley said, gratification. The question isn't whether or not you're going to be gratified. You will. You succumb to the flesh, there is a gratification. It's short-lived, it's finalized with regret and remorse. But when you choose to submit to God's plan, and you allow Jesus to empower you, You're going to be gratified with a gratification that lasts all the way to eternity. And so the question really is, I think, Pastor Bradley, a question of what kind of gratification do you want? What kind of experience of life do you want? Do you want a taste of the water that will never leave you thirsty? Or do you just want a sip of water from a glass that's going to ultimately tell you how thirsty you are? Like, that's the real question, and so Paul, when he says, who is going to deliver me from this body, what he's saying is, Jesus is going to deliver me from this body right now, and he's going to deliver me from the body in the future, and that's sanctification and glorification. For for fancy words, it's you becoming holy, and you being, not ever having to deal with the struggle again. In other words, sin will receive its final blow and be no more, and that's an awesome
0: thing, I think. Yeah. And, and we need to keep that ultimate victory in mind so that we don't grow weary and lose heart in, in, in the fight. I, I want to look at chapter 8, the first four verses, because I, I think this is so crucial. After the cry for who's going to deliver me from this body of death, acknowledging that it's going to come through Jesus Christ, our Lord, here's what he writes. He says, There is therefore, and I think that therefore, it's reaching back into the end of seven, but I think it's really all of Romans so far. It's a big therefore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's talking about our justification. We understand that, right? There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. We are not justified by works of the law. Has Paul made that clear or has he made it clear? Right? We know this. We're not launching toward a verdict. We're launching from a verdict. We are justified by grace through faith. Paul has made that clear. Then look at verse 2. For, it's a really important word. You could insert because, and the question is, what does that because, or what does that for mean? There's, there's, there's a couple of different ways we use the word for and because. We, we, we use the word for and because to talk about a cause and effect, and sometimes we use it to talk about evidence, right? So I could say, I'm hungry because I skipped breakfast, or I'm hungry for I skipped breakfast. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a cause and effect. I skipped breakfast, so now I'm hungry. Right? Or I could say, I am hungry for my stomach is growling. What am I saying? The evidence of my hunger is that my stomach is growling. You with me? So what's Paul doing here? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for... Because, what's he talking about, evidence or cause? Look at it. The law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I think he's talking about evidence. Christians, you know this. We know this. In Christ, we are justified, and there's a power at work in us, right? Is there a power at work in the world? Do we have weak flesh? But isn't it also true that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, right? And who's gonna save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit is a greater power that's at work in me and it's at work in you that's greater than the weakness of my flesh and it's even greater than the power of sin at work in the world. And there's evidence of that. There's evidence of that. Christians, when you over... Think about those moments. I know the moments of failure are so close to the front of our minds, right? But I want you to pull from your memory. I'm going to pull from mine too. What about those moments where you said no? What about those moments where there was something inside of you, where you, you leaned into a power that was greater than your flesh and greater than the power at work in the world, and you, said, you not only said no to sin, you said yes to delight and satisfaction in Jesus. There is the evidence, right, that the law's been written on our hearts, we've been justified by grace through faith, and that there's a power at work in us that's greater than the weakness of our flesh or the power it's at work in the world. Let's keep reading. Four, here's another four, all right? I think now we're into a cause and effect kind of thing. Watch this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law's not bad, but my flesh is weak, and the law exposed that. But God did something that the law could not do. What did he do? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I've said it before. As I've read Romans, I've been finding myself just longing, longing, longing to spend time in the gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because I love seeing Jesus bat a thousand in his fight against sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? He won. And I love that he's not only given me an example, but he is laying the foundation for my righteousness in him, right? So what the law law couldn't do because of the weak flesh, God fulfilled it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's the key who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a game changer. That's a game changer. A lot of Christians only know the fight against sin through willpower discipline. And you might, you might win a battle here and there just by trying to say no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. But Paul's given us a recipe. Paul's—I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Paul's giving us the truth, the revelation that there is actually a resource God has provided for us. Who's not an it? It's not a, an accountability partner. I'm not saying those are bad. It's the power of the Spirit within us, the person of the Holy Spirit, that if we could somehow walk by Him, literally that means stay in step with Him, that we could have victory over the power of of sin and the weakness of our flesh. Yeah.
1: What he said. I think, you know,
0: when we talk about this... Maybe we should just do this every week, and I'll just stand up here and amen you, and you can stand up here and amen me.
1: I bet we preach
0: better. I, was, I think we would. Longer. Longer.
1: Maybe longer. You know, I think when it comes to the struggle with sin, we all have it. The two guys up here have it. If you're in a seat, you have it. We all have it. But I think for Paul, the starting line matters. For Paul, what he understood, and I think what you've got to understand and what I've got to understand, what Pastor Bradley have to understand, is that sin cannot touch me in my belonging to Christ. It cannot. Amen. Nothing I do or do not do will touch that. There's no condemnation. None. So if you're out there and you failed this morning, There's no condemnation. Nothing takes you out of his hand. Not a thing. Not a sin. Not a thing. But I do think, yeah, it's all right. I think Paul does kind of give us a map of how do we approach this? What do we do? Right? One of the things, a lot of y'all know I was a the police department, and I was also on our tactical team. So a lot of times, if we had a situation where we came out, we would know that there was a person that was armed in a house waiting. They weren't listening. They wouldn't come out. Somebody's got to go in. We didn't know where. We didn't know where they were hiding. We didn't know what their intentions were. Other than we were there, we had a task, and we had to do it. And so the way we responded to that was what we called an immediate threat. We called it an immediate threat. What do you do when you see an immediate threat? You go right at it. You don't run from it. You don't turn. You don't go into a different room. You go right at the threat. And the reason we do that as Christians, when, when sin sneaks up, that we go after the threat is because we know we've already won. We've already won. And so this is what Paul does. He says, I go after that threat and sometimes the threat gets me, but that's only on occasion. And look at how Paul does this. He says, I desire to do what God wants, but I find that on occasion my flesh gets its way. What is that? That's a confession. God, I want to do what's right, but sometimes I don't rely on your spirit. And then he goes, I'm wretched. God, I'm frustrated that I keep finding myself in this position. And I, I, I long for the day that it's done. But until then, teach me, God, to rely on your spirit in the present. And so what is that? That's repentance and acceptance of the fact that he's in a fight. But then he does something else. He says, thanks be to God. He realizes that he's not doing this alone, that God is in this thing with him, and that God is really for him. And so what is that? That's praise and anticipation of a sure victory. Paul gives us exactly what we need to do. We need to confess, we need to repent, and we need to give thanks to God because nothing will ever strip us from his hand. That's what he's saying, that we we really can and have, have already won. The problem with most Christians, and let's be honest, when sin sneaks in, we already think we've lost. You can't go in this war that way. You go into this war knowing that the Spirit of God is in you and that sin can't
0: stop that, period. So what is this walking in step with the Spirit thing? This is what we're going to be on for the next several weeks as we unpack chapter 8. Let me just give you a couple of things to think about, okay? Okay. It would be interesting, I think, if we were able to poll all of us, right, after, like on Sunday afternoon at 4 or 5 o'clock. How's your fight been with sin today? You know? It would just be interesting to see. I'm not saying that church is an end-all, be-all, cure-all. Certainly not. But think about what we do when we come in here. We come in here and We worship. Right? Do you think the Spirit is leading us in that? You think the Spirit's helping us with that? We come in here and we pray. Think the Spirit's helping us with that? Is he leading us in that? What else do we do? We come in here and we open this. And we examine and we look and we treasure hunt. Right? You think the Spirit's helping us with that? You think He's leading us in that? And you know what happens, I think, is that a lot of Christians. Churches, you know, their relationship with Jesus is a weekend thing. And you get into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and all of a sudden there's less and less and less effort on our part to stay in step with the Spirit. Just through things like worship. These are not the only things the Spirit does, but just through things like worship and prayer and time in the Word. Christians, if, if, do you think Keith and those SWAT team members when they approach a home and there's someone barricaded inside of it with a weapon, do you think they would show up to that scene without weapons of their own, without body armor? No. No. <laughs> lots of training before all that, too. Right? Right? So it's just, they, they, lots of training before that. I rode along with him one night, which is a funny story in and of itself we'll I'll tell you about one day. Not but, funny. <laughs> We're out of time. I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> but I rode around with him, and I got to see the kind of situations that police officers often find themselves in. But they don't do that without being prepared. Christians, how prepared are you for the fight today, for the fight tomorrow? How, how are you making efforts to fight your weak flesh and the power of sin at work in the world by staying in step with the Spirit. You know, it'll change the game if you start to think of, you know, Christians talk a lot about quiet time, right? You have your quiet time in the morning or you have your quiet time in the evening, or you have your quiet time over lunch. What if we... started to think about those times as more than just I read a chapter in a devotional book or I read a few verses of a chapter or two of the Bible and I'm trying to get through the Bible in a year and kind of do my do my Christian thing what if we started to think about those whether it's 15 minutes for you 30 minutes an hour if you started to think about this is where I'm fighting And I'm not just fighting against what I don't want. I'm fighting for what I do want. I'm not just fighting against the things I hate. I'm fighting for the things that I now find eternal delight in. And God, help me. By your spirit, let me see. Let me understand When I worship you, not just on church, but in my car or at home or on the way to work, when I worship you, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with joy in you. Because we're in this already but not yet state, aren't we? The body is wasting away, but inwardly we've been made new and are being made new day by day. So we're going to end with worship. And I love this song. Because it talks about my melody is a weapon. My weapon is a melody, right? I'm going to raise a hallelujah. And I'll watch the darkness flee. You know where light is, darkness can't stay. So we're going to come to worship. Praise team, you can come on. Keith's going to lead us in prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to teach us what it means to stay in step with him. Because that's what Paul has told us is the way we have victory over our weak flesh and over the power of sin that's been broken over our lives. Keith, lead us in prayer. Stand with me.
1: God, I ask that in the next few moments that we would wage war, that we would go to fight not so much against our flesh but what we're fighting for and Lord I just ask you and Lord to take Paul's approach we confess that at times our flesh prevails we repent and ask you to help us And we declare that in the name of Jesus, we are triumphant. And so today we declare in the presence of a flesh that is broken with ungodly desire, we sing a melody and we declare war on our flesh. We will live in the fullness of the Spirit. And we will cast ourselves at this cross, knowing that in you, There's no condemnation, that in you, we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And so, in the presence of our enemy, we declare that we are triumphant. And so, God, we raise our hallelujah today in
0: Jesus' name. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.